there are a lot of different issues that we are divided around. And it, and it can feel like if you don't kind of fall on the right side of things, relationships end or you are considered uh, awful by this side or awful by that side, and, and things have really gotten uh, very polarized. And we want to, as Christians, and if you're not a Christian, we're, we're really grateful that you're here and you can get a window into what God's Word, what the Bible says about things. But as Christians, we, we want to know what does God say. We want to know how to think about things. But not just how to think about things, also how to live, how to relate. It's not just enough to um, know the right things, but also we need to know the right way to live and approach things. And none of us want to kind of just be considered stupid or on the wrong side of history or to be disliked by people. None of us want that. And we also don't want to be cowards and hide what we believe and have to feel like uh, I, what I believe, I need to kind of sugarcoat everything or make it sound super uh, palatable to everybody. We, we don't want to kind of live in either of those places. But the Bible tells us that we should expect, as Christians, that we should expect that we live in a world that doesn't share the beliefs, values, practices, God of the Bible. The Bible says we should expect that we're going to live in a world that has competing stories, that has competing values, that has competing beliefs, that offers different interpretations. If you are a Christian, our expectation should be, I live in a world where I am, the Bible's language is, where I am an exile, where I, I'm supposed to live here, I'm supposed to be faithful here, I'm supposed to love here, I'm supposed to be present here, but, but this is not ultimately my, my home. And so it's going to be different. I should expect that there's a lot of difference. That, that's what the Bible helps us to begin with. And this series is designed to help us bring all of our worldview, all of our thinking, all of our relating to God and say, okay, we want you to then inform how we live here, how we think here, how we relate here. How does God speak into the what and the how? And that's what this series is. And today, we're going to talk about transgender identity. And many of you, this is a, a real issue. You have to figure out how you respond and relate in your work or your school or your family. Some of you are maybe struggling in your own identity and trying to think about how to think through that. We're trying to figure out how to navigate through this very complex and very present issue. And in one sense, this topic is all around us. It's hard to see a, a new, it's hard to kind of scroll through the news or social media without seeing something about some celebrity or something about some law or something about someone that said this or someone that said that. Or it, It's kind of hard to escape the, the presence of this issue. And in another sense, I think for many Christians, not, not for everybody, but for many Christians, we really don't really know a lot about transgender identity, what it means and what the ins and outs are. We're, we might be exposed to all sorts of things around us, but not actually have a lot of education either in the basics or in what God's Word would help us and inform us around this. And I, I want to say this, and this is true for today, but it's true of all the different issues that we're going to talk about. I, I can't 
I mean, I, I could preach, not today because I'm sick, but normally I could preach for four hours if I, if I, if I wanted to, you know. And I, I, I can't cover everything that could be said. So I, I want to just say that at the out front. If, if there's things I don't say or things I say, but I, I, don't, I'm not, I don't have the time to be able to unpack everything or give all the different, you know, what ifs this or this, or this I, I, I'm not able to do that. And there's a lot of great resources. If you're on our newsletter, every week we're sending out related resources to all these things. I've read several books in preparation for this and watched a lot of things, debates, and heard different stories from different people. So there's tons of stuff that's out there, and we want to be able to help you, equip you with that. So if you're on our newsletters, we'll send that out every Friday. We're sending different resources related to these topics. So I know that everything can't be covered, okay? So I just want to say that up front, and uh, hopefully it... We, you're able to get a good foundation, but it points you to investigate further. For some of you, maybe this is all you need. You're like, okay, this is great. This is, gives me a good framework. But for some of you, there's more questions that you have and more things you need to explore and more practicals that you need to figure out. And that's, that's okay. And we want to help you with that. Uh, I need to, I'll, I'll have to pause a couple times to take drinks of water. So you can take a phone break each time I do that and check, uh, you know, Check the score, or check the stocks, or I don't whatever's happening. Um, <clears throat> so we want to know what God says, right? We want to hear what does God say about these things. And today, what does God say about transgender identity? But let's begin with understanding some basic terms and some basic data, uh, just to help you. Because for some of you, you're probably like, "Yeah, I know a little bit, but ha- haven't I don't know too much." So let's just cover some basic terms that you will hear. So the first is assigned sex or sex assigned at birth. The sex, typically male or female, that is assigned to a person based on their external genitalia at birth. Cisgender or cis, someone whose gender identity corresponds with expectations based on the sex they were assigned at birth. Gender identity, the inherent feeling within an individual of what gender they are. Gender dysphoria. Emotional distress related to the sense that one's assigned sex is not in line with one's gender identity. Transgender or trans, an adjective to describe someone who does not fully identify with the sex they were assigned at birth. And finally, non-binary, a gender identity that denotes someone who does not fully identify with the binary genders of male, man, masculine, or female, woman, feminine. They might say that there's some, there, another uh, term that's often used around this is gender fluid, that I don't identify with one particular thing, a binary meaning two separate things, but somewhere within that spectrum or nowhere within that spectrum. That's where you'll see uh, people that list off a hundred different kinds of genders, okay? All this is from Stanford uh, university. Now, just kind of some data. How many adults and youth identify as transgender in the United States? This is from June uh, 2022. About 1.6 million people that are 13 and up identify as transgender in the U.S. 39% are trans women, 36% transgender men. The others don't identify as a particular one of those. And in the U.S., young adults are the most likely to be transgender or non-binary between 18 and 29. uh, About 5% of people in those ages would categorize themselves as transgender or non-binary. So that's a pretty good number to say 5% of people. So especially for those of you that are educators or in, in schools, I know in conversations with you, you'll say, yeah, you know, I might know a lot of adults and none of them are, but within a classroom, you start to see a lot more. 5% is a pretty big number. 
So, all of that said, what does God say? How are we supposed to think about this? How are we supposed to feel? And how are we supposed to relate? How are we supposed to live in a world where this is a present reality? And what I want to do is give you four building blocks that will help you just gain a grasp of an understanding of what God says about these things. And like many issues that are present today, if you were to talk about technology usage, or last week we talked about abortion, or if you're going to talk about um, certain kind of social media use, or how, how involved the government should be in certain aspects of our life, or data privacy, or th- there's a lot of things that the Bible doesn't have a specific verse for that specific thing. But what the Bible does do is help us build a worldview by giving us an overarching vision, which is actually even more important oftentimes than just a specific verse that you can point to. Instead of just a specific verse, the Bible does give us verses, but it also gives us a framework for understanding the Bible's worldview, the Bible's vision. And you're able then, uh, if you're exploring Christianity, to say, do I agree with that vision or not? And if you're a Christian, you're able to say, okay, this is what the Bible's worldview of life is supposed to be. And so I want to give you really four big building blocks. The first one we'll spend the most time on. And it's, I, I, I talked about this last week as well, but we are made in the image of God. This is the first, and it's, it's really the, the central uh, anthropological center of building a framework for humanity. If you want to know what the Bible says about humans and who we are, which is very important, this is the, the central piece. This is the starting place, and it frames so much of the understanding of everything else because we all have to know what is our origin story? Who are we? That's an important thing that all of us have to, to think about. And the Bible's beginning place, and we'll spend some time kind of looking at the implications of this as it relates to this issue, is that we are made in the image of God. Here's how Genesis says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. That's the starting place. And here's four different things that we can draw from this that's related to this issue. First is this. It means that all of us have an inherent significant value and worth. Now, just that is very important, that who you are, God has made you with an inherent value, worth, dignity, that human life is sacred. said that last week as we were talking about the issue of abortion. But you, whoever you are, whatever your age is, whatever your ethnicity is, whatever your abilities are, whatever your socioeconomic status is, You, because you are a human, you are made in the image of God, which means you have worth, beauty, value. It's sacred. We can even use that language. C.S. Lewis, I don't have a quote. I thought thought about using it, but but he he says that a, a human being is so holy, so sacred, that if you knew who they really were, if you knew exactly, if you saw them as God sees them, you would be tempted to worship them because of just how sacred we are. There's nothing like humans. You have value, dignity, worth. You're made in the image of God. That's the first thing that this means. The second thing that it means, as we can think about this issue, is that we are not creators, but we are created. We are not creators. We are created. God 
created you. God created us. You are not a creator of yourself. You are created. Now, this is so important because think about how we often think about our identity. Who has the right to tell you who you are? Who has the right to tell you who to be? And the way that we have decided that in our culture, the way that we have decided that is all external authority is bad. All external influence, all external voices, tradition, society, culture, all of that is bad. And the only way to know who you are is how? To look inside. To look inside and decide for yourself who you are. If you want to, def- if you want to decide who you are, if you want to know who you are, the way that you do that is by looking inside. Be true to yourself. Not be true to anything outside of you. Not, don't listen to anyone else's voice. This is the theme of pretty much every Disney movie. It's the theme of pretty much lots of movies, many songs, much literature, is you have to be true to yourself. Do not let anything else on the outside seek to conform you into something. You create yourself. Look inside, listen to the voice of your heart, find out who you are, and be true to that, which offers us a sense of freedom, right? No one else can tell me what to do. No one else can tell me who to be. No one else gets to shape my life. I am in control of my own destiny. It offers us a sense of freedom. But we know that this can't actually fully answer the question of who we are. Because the longer you live, the more you know this. Don't you let yourself down sometimes? You've, I know I have looked inside my heart and sought to follow and actually made dumb choices. You're like, oh, that was stupid. I guess I shouldn't have listened to myself. And aren't there desires inside of you? Aren't there desires inside of you that are also conflicting? There's certain desires that, like, I want to be true to this, I want to be, but they're, they're conflicting. And don't we also know that we always suppress some desires and allow others to bear fruition. Aren't there some things that we know, I need to suppress that desire. I have a desire pretty much most days to eat a whole bag of chips. And I'm not really joking. <laughs> you know, like I have a desire to do that. I have a desire to go to a donut place and order a dozen donuts. Not for my family, but for me. <laughs> pretty much all the time. Like those are desires I have that you're laughing about because we know, yeah, you should suppress those desires, right? You don't just say, well, I need to be true to those desires. I need to be true to my physical urges. We know that there's some desires we suppress. I have said many times, I wish that, like, my car was like a bumper car. That way, when I got mad at somebody, I could just jam into them, and it didn't cause really any damage, but I still got the point across. Like, that's a desire that I truly have, you know. And and yet, I, I know, and you know, we have to suppress certain desires, right? Uh... The late, great pastor Tim Keller uh, says, he, he has an illustration of a thought experiment saying, imagine you lived a thousand years ago and you were kind of in some ancient tribe and you were a warrior. And in that culture, it would be normal that you would have certain desires for your honor, for your valor, and you would, you would fight people that dishonored you and you would destroy them. 
And no one would say anything about that. You would say, I've got this desire to prove my honor, to prove my bravery, to uh, show other people my strength. And the culture around you would encourage you not to suppress that desire, but to allow that to flourish. And you would express that. But, a thousand years ago, let's say this same warrior was dealing with some sort of sexual identity and, and it was different from the culture around them. They would say, ah, I need to suppress that desire because the culture around me would say that's not a desire that you're allowed to express. But now, fast forward today, it would be the reverse. If you were in Denver, in Arvada, or in, some, in many parts of our country, if you had the desire to act out aggressively to prove your strength, to prove your honor, that desire would be encouraged to be suppressed, and yet your sexual desires and identity would be encouraged to let thrive and let flourish, right? And so we all have various desires that we are constantly suppressing or allowing to come out to the surface. We all do that all the time, right? We all do that all the time. So we have to decide, well, how do we know which ones? How do you know which ones to allow to flourish and which ones to keep in check? How do you know? And really, it's the culture around us that informs that. But we have to do something better than that. What we have to do is to say, I am created. That's my filter. I'm not creator. I am created. I'm created, which means I have someone that I can listen to about who I am. It's not just looking inside and deciding who I am. It's not just seeing what my desires are and being true to those desires. I am saying I am created, not creator. And so I listen and trust the one that created me. And I believe that when I am listening to, one, to the one that created me, I will thrive as I follow the design that he made me in. Think about a fish. A fish is free when it's in water. But if a fish were to say, I want to decide who I am and decide what I want to do and decide to jump out on land, it might feel free for 30 seconds and then it would die because it's not living true to how it was designed, how it was created. So when we intentionally say, I am created, not creator, and then we live within our design, we actually are flourishing because we are trusting a reliable source instead of just ourselves. So that's the second thing that being made in the image of God tells us. The first is that you have value, dignity, worth, beauty because of the fact that you are sacredly made in God's image. The second thing it tells you is that you are created, not creator. And the third thing it tells us is that your body matters. Your body matters. Here's how Genesis says it. God created them male and female. So even just that is saying he designed them not just as nebulous beings. He didn't design them as genderless beings. He didn't design them as just kind of empty, you know, like a, a, a naked Barbie that just has nothing there and uh, is able to just be like, I don't know what this thing is, you know. It's just sort of a, a weird flat part right there, right? It's, he created them male and female. He designed them with a specific body. And Jesus, if you look back at this and maybe go, oh, yeah, that's the Old Testament. And, uh, Jesus picks up this same verse. This is in a context where people are asking him about marriage and divorce. But he says, haven't you read that he who created them in the beginning 
made them male and female. And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, where God is joined together, let no one separate. He's talking again, picking up this verse in Genesis and saying, God designed people male and female. Your body matters. There is, in the fact that you are made in the image of God, there is inherent in that, that your body is part of what it means that you're made in God's image. Your gender matters. And there is, in Genesis, a gender binary, male and female. That is how God designed things. That is what God made. That is what Jesus affirms. And the very idea of being made in the image of God, that word image, is often used in the Bible to talk about idols. And an idol is a physical statue. So even when he is saying you're made in the image of God, don't just think of some kind of spiritual reality, but it's really saying you are an idol. You are a statue of God, reflecting him, representative of him on this earth. But there's a physical embodiment to the very essence of being made in the image of God, which is why it says male and female, he created them in the image of God. Your body matters. Now, is that how you view things? Because oftentimes we don't. Separate even transgender identity and issues around that. Oftentimes we don't think our body matters. We just think, yeah, you know, your heart matters, your soul matters, your body doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter what you do with your body. What matters is your heart. What matters is your soul. And there's a lot of confusion that Christians actually have around this. We think, eh, all, all sorts of things that can go wrong that I don't have time to necessarily explore. But as Christians, we often think, yeah, the body doesn't really matter. But the Bible's view of the body is, is actually really high. Uh, theologian, intellectual, professor, thinker, I don't know all her titles, but Nancy Piercy in her book, Love Thy Body, excellent book, talks about that there has been a separation between truth. There's a separation between an upper story of truth, and this is you know, maybe kind of technical for you, but I want to just put this out here. But the concept of truth has been divided into kind of two different frames, where the top is more private, subjective, relativistic, and the bottom is public, objective, valid for everyone. Sometimes in philosophy, they'll talk about this as a, as a value and fact distinction, but there's this separation of truth, where the Bible's view is that truth is comprehensive. It's, she has another book before this one called Total Truth. And anytime you begin to separate truth into these different frames, you start to go wrong. That's where you'll start to say things like, that might be true for you, but it's not true for me. You're saying, well, this, that kind of truth is just up here, but it's not objective. And so then she takes this idea and explores how, if you take that same concept and put it into the body, some of the things that have happened. And I won't talk about all these, but this is just another graph that uh, this one is the most relevant to what we're talking about, but that there's a separation between the person, and again, we talked about this last week as it relates to abortion, uh, there's a separation between the person and the body, where a person is a free, autonomous self-consciousness, and the body is a mechanism inconsequential. So if you take this idea that there's a separation and the body doesn't really matter, or there's a separation between truth, if you take that, then you start to say things like, it doesn't really matter what I do with my body. Why would God even care what people do with their body? 
It's just, it's just some people say, I, I saw different videos or people describing their stories. This is just my meat skeleton. Like, this is nothing, you know. That's not who I am. Who I am is what I feel. Who I am is what I think. Who I am in my truest sense is, is who I believe myself to be. That's saying body doesn't matter. What matters is the consciousness. So, same, so just to go back to last week, for those of you that weren't here, in a lot of the abortion conversation, it's, well, this, this is a human life, but it's just a body. It's not a person yet. So anytime you, you begin to make a separation and start to say the body doesn't actually matter, the body is just this physical thing, you're outside of the Bible's worldview. Because the Bible's worldview says, no, your body really matters. Part of what it means that you're made in the image of God doesn't just mean some sort of spiritual essence. Your body, and listen, it's interesting because as a culture, we, on the one side, we have this whole idea of body positivity and, you know, uh, not body shaming people and all this stuff where the body, the body, it's good, it's valuable, and don't let anyone say anything about your body and be proud of your body. And, and then on the other side, we say the body doesn't matter. God doesn't care what you do with your body. It's just a body. But the Bible's worldview is that all of you was made in the image of God, and thus your body matters, which is why you'll see things in the Bible that really elevate the view of the body. By the way, in ancient Greek culture, which is what the New Testament is written into, they didn't have a high view of the body either. They thought physical labor was for weaklings. That's why the philosophers and people like Socrates, and that, that was the highest. Anything that you did with the mind was the highest reality. Anything lower than that was seen as less than because you were more in tune with the body. They had all sorts of uh, a separation between the body and the spirit. The Bible's worldview is holistic. It's integrated. And so you see things in the Bible like this. The entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. Think about the fact that God took on flesh, that God became a body. So if you're a Christian, you believe that God took on a body. That, that's a really high view of the body. Or, the Bible says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought at a price, so glorify God with your body. So this is not a diminishing of the body. It's to say your body is a temple. That's very high language. Your body, not just your spirit, not just your soul, not your body. So even as Christians, sometimes we use this language, which is not in the Bible, by the way, of I'm accepting Jesus into my heart, which is this very spiritualized version of Christianity. Instead of, this is actually saying, your body is a temple. God dwells within all of you. Your body is holy and sacred. And you can glorify God. You can honor God. You can worship God with your body. Not just with your soul and your mind, but your body matters. And Paul says in Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, he will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. This is to say that you will, when Jesus returns, if you're a Christian, have a new and transformed body. When you go to heaven, that existence is not you floating around on a cloud. It's not a... I don't, my references are old. It's not a Casper the Ghost kind of situation where you're just kind of living like some sort of floaty version of yourself. 
It is you in a new and transformed body. That's, that's who you will be forever, is you will have a body. Now, it won't be old and decaying and sick and have back problems and ear hair and all sorts of other weird things, but it'll be a glorious body, okay? Now, some of you are like self-conscious, but, you know, things happen when you get older. You lose hair in certain places and grow it in others. We are made in the image of God, which means your body matters, okay? To be made in the image of God means your body matters. Otherwise, God would have just made spirits, but God made your body. Your body matters. And then fourth, because we are made in the image of God, it means that because God made you, think about this, you are made in the image of God. So that means because God made you, because he's your creator, he intended and wanted you to be the gender that he made you, which means we're not supposed to confuse our gender or display our gender in a different way than the way that God designed it to be. And this is, there's several different verses I could show you on this. This is kind of the most straightforward. The other ones would take a lot more time to kind of show you the context. So I'm only going to give you this one. There's a couple others in the New Testament that I'm happy to talk through with anybody, but here's just one that's very straightforward. Deuteronomy 22.5 says this, a woman is not to wear male clothing and a man is not to put on a woman's garment. For everyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord your God. Now that seems maybe kind of strange to our ears, I think in earlier ages, people would just say, yeah, of course. To our ears, that seems like, that, that seems weird. Why such a kind of hard line on that? But it's because we are made in the image of God. And God's saying, I designed you to be male and female. And so I want you to display the beauty and the glory of who I made you to be. And we can think, well, isn't that just kind of a societal construct? And isn't it just cultural male and female dress? Aren't the, don't those things differ by culture and and the answer to that is, yes, they do. So, like, one of my favorite movies, it used to be my favorite movie until Lord of the Rings came out, but my, one of my old favorite movies that has been, been dethroned is Braveheart. And in Braveheart, dude's got long hair, wears a skirt, and makeup. And you're like, that's a man's man, <laughs> you know? And yet, if I showed up like that today, you guys would be very confused, right? So, it is cultural, but that doesn't mean it doesn't matter. So we do handshakes or fist bumps here. And you go to Asia, and in a lot of cultures there, it's going to be a bow, right? So both of them are communicating the same thing, though. They're communicating honor. And what God wants you to do is to communicate the gender that he designed you with. He wants you to display the beauty of the gender he designed you with because it's honoring him. You're saying, I was made in his image, and so based on the culture that I live in, I am displaying the beauty of who he made me to be. So I am displaying the masculinity and the femininity, the maleness and the femaleness of who he made me to be. Does that change through cultures, through times, different ages? Yes, but we are still supposed to say, what does it mean for me to display my maleness and my femaleness? Because that is not just a cultural thing. It's saying, I am honoring the fact that I was made in God's image. I'm saying what he did was purposeful and beautiful, and I want to display the beauty of it. Listen, your maleness is awesome, and your femaleness is awesome. You should be proud 
of your masculinity and your femininity. You should be proud that you are male and female. That is a, a purposeful thing that God designed you with. So all of this is just my first point. <laughs> all of this is helping us to understand two things. First, this is just the foundational building block. I told you the anthropological center of a biblical worldview is that we are made in the image of God, okay? But all of this also helps us see how did we get to where we are? How does it make sense that we can decide or feel a certain gender that's different? And, and this helps us as we understand made in the image of God, helps us to see how we got here. Because as soon as we start to deviate from this, we begin to see, well, if the body doesn't really matter, then it, it's my mind that matters. We start to see that, well, there isn't really any solid truth, but truth is just kind of whatever I decide it to be. No one can tell me who I am, but I can decide who I want to be. We see as we're a relativistic, individualistic, non-body-approving non, uh, culture. All of these things actually begin to make sense. Where the psychological takes place over the physical, where the individual takes place over tradition or community, where truth is relativized, everything begins to make sense. But being made in the image of God is actually one of the huge correctives to all of that. And whether or not you are curious about transgender identity for yourself or uh, just trying to explore what, what this looks like in our culture, all of us have been affected by all of those things that I just said with various issues. All right, point number two. Sorry, I'm moving a little slow because my body is against me today. So point number two is this. Sin distorts everything. Sin distorts everything, including our bodies. This is how Romans says this. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay in the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves, who have the Spirit as the first fruits. We also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now, there's a lot in there, but I just want to point out to you one of the basic ideas, which is that when sin entered into the world, so when I say sin distorts everything, I don't necessarily mean our individual sins, but when sin entered into the world, when man and woman turned against God, sin enters into the world, and that's what we call the fall, things break. But what that means is now there's this bondage, there's this decay, there's this groaning within ourselves, this need for redemption that even creation and us physically experience, that sin distorts everything, which means everything is broken. It means everything is affected. It means our mind is affected by sin. It means our feelings are affected by sin. It means our bodies are affected by sin. Everything is distorted. If we just said, you're made in the image of God, creation, everything's wonderful, then we would expect everything to be beautiful and perfect, right? But as sin enters into the world, sin distorts everything, which means our existence is painful. It means there's groaning. It means there's things that we say, this doesn't feel the way it should be. This doesn't work the way it should work. It means also that we expect incongruence in our lives. We expect a battle within us 
from here is who I was designed and made to be, and here's how the fall and sin has distorted and broken things. That's what we would expect. Here's how the Bible talks about that. Peter says, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. There's often this battle within us that we have to actually abstain from. There's a war now within our soul. It's not just that I can say, here's who God made me to be and just live fully in it and there's no problems. It's that there's a war that happens within us. There's an incongruence between things I want and things I should want, between things I feel and things I should feel, between who I am and who God calls me to be. There's a battle. There's a war within us. Here's another section that says, I say then, walk by the Spirit and you will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. There's a battle often inside of us between the things that I want to do and the things that God calls me to do, between the Spirit and the flesh, between the things of the world and the things of God. There, because sin distorts everything, there is a battle. There's an incongruence. So we should expect that we're not going to just have pure thoughts. We're not going to just have pure desires. We're not going to just be able to look inside and decide what to do and think about things correctly. And We should expect that there's certain times where we will feel this isn't, like, I want to do this, but it's, it's, not, it, it's not what I should do. We should expect that, that there will be an incongruence, which is why the Bible says also we can't just look and decide, look inside and decide what to do. Jeremiah says, the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? So the Bible is saying you can't just look inside and just because every part of you is affected by sin. Sin distorts everything, which, which means we will often face a battle. And it means people around you will face a battle all the time between what God calls them to do and be and between what they want to do and be. There is a battle. And we all feel that in various ways. Might not be with transgender identity. It might be. Some of you may be wrestling with that. But we all feel a battle. We all feel an incongruence inside of us because sin distorts everything. Here's what that means. It should lead us to a lot of compassion for people. It should lead us not to just say, how could you think that? You're so stupid. How could you feel that? Gross. Ugh. But we should actually have a lot of compassion from the Bible's worldview that says sin distorts everything. It creates a war. I mean, when there's a war, look, you all know this and feel this in different ways, right? When there's a war going on inside of you, you don't go, oh, that's stupid. You know that for your war, but when we look at other people's wars, sometimes we immediately just think it's dumb, and judge, or self-righteous. But the Bible helps us understand we all have this incongruence we all have this battle. We all have this war that's waging, which should lead us to a lot of compassion for people. And, I mean, if you're not struggling with a gender dysphoria, then imagine if you were. And I don't like struggling with just a common cold. Going, And I feel like I should be able to be like this, but my cold is making me feel like this. Now, that's pretty low on the body struggle issue. But I don't even like that. And I want you to feel sorry for me. I want soup from some of you. I would like some soup. <clears throat> I want some compassion, right? But imagine feeling like in your body, I was 
born this way physically, but I feel like I'm this gender. Now, instead of immediately saying, well, you're wrong and you're stupid, and you're, we, shouldn't we feel a lot of compassion for that struggle? The Bible says that there is a war inside of us, that sin distorting everything should help us know that creation is broken, which should lead us to a lot of compassion and should lead us to desire to help bear people's burdens also. So that's the second point. Sin distorts everything. Third framework in these building blocks is that we belong to God. We're made in the image of God. Sin distorts everything. And third, we belong to God. Probably the most helpful book I read around this um, subject that if you're wanting to dive deeper in, this would probably be one of the main ones I'd recommend to you. It's called God and the Transgender Debate. Uh, he, he talks about how we make decisions in our worldview and how we, how we make a decision about anything, how our worldview is, is framed. And he says, when you're making a decision about anything, we're really answering these questions. Authority, who has the right to tell me what to do? Knowledge, who knows what is best for me to do? And trustworthiness, who loves me and wants what is best for me? Any decision that you're making, any worldview, that any, any, any way that you're kind of trying to decide, especially the, the biggest things in life, you're, you're really, whether uh, proactively or just kind of subconsciously, you're going through these things. Who has the right to tell me what to do? Now, for us, again, most of the way that we answer that is going to be ourselves. Uh, only I have the right to tell me what to do. I know what's best for me. And I know that I'm the one that really loves me. I'm the one that really has my best interest in mind. I'm the one that really cares for me. And so really, when we're building a worldview, oftentimes, we're looking internally to answer those questions. Now, we might look to other sources. We might look to friends. We might look to celebrities. We might look to TikTok. That's where influencers and various people can have an effect on us and say, well, they know what they're talking about. And they're, the science says this. They're trustworthy. They seem to be a good voice on various things. But ultimately, those voices are limited. I mean, you're limited, I'm limited. We don't have perfect knowledge. We don't know all the outcomes. We don't have authority. And we don't even always know what's best for us. And the Bible's worldview gives us something better. It says that God made you. God made you, so he does have authority to tell you what to do. And God is all-knowing and wise, and he knows actually what's best for you. He's the one that brought you into existence. He knew you before you were even born. He knows your past. He knows your present. He knows your future, and he knows you right now, the ins and the outs, emotionally, mentally, physically. God knows every part of you, and so he knows what's best for you, and the Bible tells us that he loves you. He loves you more than you love you. No, no, no amount of self-love that you could ever have could match the amount of love that God has for you that God would give his only son to die for us, that Jesus would willingly lay down his life to bring us into his family. The love that he has for you could never be matched. And so when you're building a worldview from the Bible's perspective, these same questions to say, well, God has authority. God knows best. He's all wise, and he loves me. So I can trust him and thus come to him to make my decisions, which is why... When you hear a verse like this, it should encourage us. 
that says, we already read this one, but don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. Now that, that language of you're not your own, you're bought at a price, that might intimidate us if it was somebody else. But if we understand I belong to God, the one who made me, the one who knows me, the one who loves me, so that is a safe place to say, I'm not my own, I belong to him. One that has complete power, complete wisdom, complete love, I belong to that person. That's a safety. Versus if I just said, yeah, you belong to that stranger over there, do whatever he says. That's going to freak you out. You don't know what they know. You don't know if they're for you. You don't, I mean, it's, you're going to feel used. You're going to feel probably, man, I'm, I'm in danger of being mistreated. But to say, the one that perfectly knows you, perfectly loves you, and has all power, that's the one you belong to. That gives us a safety. Like, in a perfect sense, although I know parents are imperfect, in a perfect sense, a child who is told, you belong to these parents, these parents that love you and care for you, that, that's a, there's a safety that's included in that. And that's what Paul is saying. You belong to him. You belong to him, which gives us a rest. But it also means this. Okay, if I belong to God, if I belong to him, if that's my starting place, if you're a Christian, that is where you begin. You belong to him. You were bought at a price, which means Jesus gave his life to buy yours. He purchased you by his blood, by his sacrifice, making you his. So if that's true, if you're a Christian, then here's what that means. The battle of the Christian is going to constantly be to therefore let who God is and what he's done for us shape our decision-making and our worldview, saying, who has the authority to tell me what to do? Who knows best for me? Or who, who knows what's best? Who wants what's best for me? It's going to be to constantly bring all of our decisions, all of our life to him and say, okay, I'm letting you shape those things because I belong to you. I don't belong to myself. I don't belong to my friends. I don't belong to just what the world around me says. I don't belong to the trends of the day. I belong to you, which means we constantly bring our choices to him and say, shape this, change this, help me think about this, help me live according to what you say because I belong to you. This is how Paul says this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, similar to saying you were bought at a price because of all the mercy that God's given you and making you his, I urge you to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, all the things that the world around us says, don't be conformed to that, which means in saying that, we're going to be tempted to. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. That's saying, you don't belong to yourself, you don't belong to this age, so you need to constantly present yourself to God and allow Him to transform the way you think about things, the way you live, the way you relate. You have to constantly bring yourself to him so that you would know what his good, pleasing, and perfect will is because you belong to him. Belong to him. Here's what this means very practically. It means when you're trying to decide things, anything, 
when you're trying to decide anything in your life, are you asking God to define those things? Are you saying, I want to be shaped by what you say? I want your good, pleasing, and perfect will to transform how I think about this. We belong to him. Or are you letting fear govern your decisions? Are you letting being liked govern your decisions? Are you letting comfort govern? Are you letting the science? Are you letting being on the right side of history? Are you letting your workplace? Are you letting popular opinion? What are you letting change your mind? Paul says we belong to God. And so we bring all of our choices, all of our worldview to him. He's good. He's merciful. And so we can trust him. Which also means this. It also means that if you belong to him, he's with you and helping you. You don't belong to him and then he just says, all right, figure it out on your own. If you belong to him, he's with you and he's helping you and he's guiding you and he's present with you and you're not by yourself. So, final point is this. We are to be full of grace and truth. We're to be full of grace and truth. So, for many of you, in the practical of life and the practical stuff of life, here's what you might be thinking about. How do I respond? How do I relate? Maybe to my kids that are struggling with this, maybe to, uh, what are they called? Classmates that are struggling with this, maybe to uh, coworkers. How, how, do I, how do I actually kind of live? If I have a Christian understanding, okay, but how do I, how do I live? And Jesus, it was said of Jesus that he was full of grace and truth. That's where I get that statement from. The word, that's talking about Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory. The glory is the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So it says when Jesus came on this earth, part of his glory, part of what made him so amazing, part of what was observed as just magnificent about him was he was full of grace and truth. I love that statement because it's not 50-50. It's not, he was, the, he was not half grace, half truth. He wasn't a hybrid. He was all electric and all diesel somehow, right? He was just to the max on both of them. It, it wasn't like this, yeah, he, he kind of was just that right mix, half calf, half, he, he wasn't, it was like full strength, Red Bull, and somehow also like water. It was just, he was, he was all of it. He was full of grace and full of truth. Full of grace, overflowing, overflowing. That's, that's what part of what full means also. He's overflowing. There's so much in him that it's coming out. He's full of grace and full of truth. Not a little bit, not 50-50, but full of grace and truth, which is hard to grasp for us, right? We can grasp kind of one or the other. We might even be able to grasp kind of a 50-50 mix, but it's hard to grasp full of grace and truth. Really the only way, and I would just commend to you if you want to be shaped in this way, is to read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and let who Jesus is fill your vision, and you'll be shocked. If you haven't read the Gospels regularly, repeatedly, you'll be shocked at what you see. To see someone that at some times was what we would probably consider so harsh in his truth, 
And yet other times we would be shocked how gracious and compassionate he was. He was full of grace and truth. And this is the same thing that we are called to. But if we're honest, most of us fail kind of on one side of this, right? Some of us want to be really tender, and others of us want to just be, I say it like it is, this is just kind of who I am, take it or leave it, I don't hold anything back. Some of us are more timid, some of us are more aggressive, some of us are, we, we love kind of getting our opinion out there, and others of us really hold back. Some of us want to preserve the relationship at all cost, and others of us want to make sure we say the truth at all cost. Okay. A lot of times we kind of fall on one side or the other of this, and it's hard to walk that line that, that Jesus did. But we need both of them. And, and I don't have kind of a perfect answer for you on all the different uh, things that we have to think through. There's a lot of different practical issues. And I'll mention two of them in just a second, but, and I'm not even saying that's kind of the final word on those and would want you to explore some of those a little bit uh, deeper, and I'll have some more resources for you in the newsletter. But my point is this. We have to do this. And the closer we get to that, the closer we're getting to both Jesus' heart and Jesus' convictions, the closer we get to full of grace and truth. So as you think about any practical issues, that's where we want to be. Am I full of grace and truth? Or am I really just trying to, I mean, it's just, I just want to love people. Or am I really just, you've got to stand up for what's true. Am I, am I really trying to be full of grace and truth? And let who Jesus is shape your mind and heart around this. So let me just give you two quick things. And much more can be said about this. And uh, the first would be around pronouns, which is just kind of a common question that people have. Do I use these pronouns? Do I not use those pronouns? How do I be full of grace and truth around this? And I would tell you that for the sake of truth, I would not, if, if you are required by a company to list your pronouns, I wouldn't do that. And if you can, I would use somebody's name. And that might be really clunky. And, but honestly, when you're speaking to someone, you're not usually using a pronoun anyway. You're saying you, and you're saying their name. And I would also say, in the sake of grace, that if you meet somebody and they say, my name is this, you don't say, no, it's not. <laughs> if you're meeting someone, you're going to respond in grace and begin to build a relationship. But as that relationship deepens, you're going to need to be truthful and say, listen, the more that we're in relation, I need to let you know, here's my convictions. And for some of you, this is an abstract thing that's not really in your life. For others of you, it's this week for you. And I would say that you want to get as close as you can to grace and truth. How do I be very truthful and yet very gracious at the same time? Now, that, I know I just gave you like a, two minutes on that, but that's, I, I don't have a Bible verse I can just point to and say, here it is, here's what it says. But I do have a Bible verse that says this, grace and truth. And the second thing is with your kids. Let's say your kids, since 5% of people in the younger age ranges are beginning to identify as transgender or non-binary, what do you do if your kid begins to say that or you see something in their search that would indicate that, what do you do? Same thing, grace and truth. Which, what would that guide you towards? 
Well, first, it would guide you to ask a lot of questions and to seek to love somebody, to say, I love you. I care for you. You're my child. Help me understand. Talk to me. It wouldn't be. By the way, just as a general parenting strategy, anything your kid brings to you, it's good not to respond with shock and just go, what? It doesn't matter what it is, you know. You, you generally want to respond with love and questions and just beginning to, you know, get to know them, understand their struggle. That's, where, that's grace, right? And then you also want to say, tell me how you're thinking through, if they're a Christian, if they identify as a Christian, tell me how you're thinking through that according to God's word. Can I share some things with you from God's word? If they're not a Christian, then that's a, that's a different conversation. But I'm mainly thinking of younger children, although some of this applies to older children. So you want to listen, love, ask questions, and speak truth, helping them be shaped by God's word. If they're very young children, then part of what your job is as a parent is to tell your children what is true. So there's kind of different stages in life, right? And if they're a very young child and they say, I'm a boy or I'm a girl or I'm a cat or I'm a dog, it's your job as a parent to say, no, you're not, sweetie. That's it. Now, that conversation changes when they're 10 and 11 and 12, but there's, there's appropriate authority as a parent that you exercise that for some reason, also in our culture, we have said, no, Extern- all external authority, including parents, it's only internal authority. Okay, so, grace and truth. That's what we need to get close to because that's how Jesus is to us. Now, I'm done. I know, uh, thank you for bearing with me in my sickness. Uh, We live in a divided age, and there's a lot that can be said on all these different topics that we're talking about, right? I don't don't, uh, pretend to have covered every single aspect, but these are very important foundational building blocks to say, you are made in the image of God, and yet sin distorts everything, but we belong to him, and we're called to be full of grace and truth. Those four building blocks will get you far in thinking through a lot of issues, but in particular, this for today. And what I want us to see, at least in part as you walk away, is to understand that there are competing visions of the good life competing visions of reality. There's competing visions. And as Christians, we have to constantly say, what does God say? How does God speak into this? How does God speak into both what is true and how I live? Both what to think and how to respond and how to live. We have to constantly bring our life to be shaped by God's word and by God's heart. That's what we constantly have to do. We cannot just accept the age around us, whether left or right, but have to constantly say, what does God say? What is God's heart? And be shaped by that. So we're going to take communion. If you're a Christian, uh, communion is a time, and if, if, you're, if you're new and, and you can't, if you didn't notice when you came in, there's little cups. Um, and you feel free to grab one of those. But communion is a time that Christians remember Jesus who came in the flesh who came in a body and who was full of grace and truth. And when we take communion, we're remembering that all the sins that we have, Jesus forgives. All the ways that we have 
operated in a way that said, I'm my own creator. All the ways in which we've said, uh, I'm my own authority. I'm going to make my own decisions. I'm going to decide my, all the, there's a million different ways we do that. All the ways that we've done that, whether that has to do with a transgender identity or has to do with something else. All the ways that we've done that, on the cross, Jesus forgives us. Communion reminds us that his blood cleanses us. His body broken for us. His body broken for us changes us, transforms us, renews us. It allows us to be forgiven and allows us to be made new, to be transformed. And that one verse that we looked at that says, you belong to him because you were bought with a price. Remember that as you take communion. Remember that I belong to him because he bought me. The price of me being in his family, the price of me belonging to the perfectly wise, powerful, loving God is that Jesus paid the price to do that, his death for my life. And so be able to confess ways that you have belonged to yourself and be able to worship him for bringing you in to belong to him. And ask him, particularly for the actual things in your life around you, for those that have family or for those that are struggling themselves or for workplace, ask him to help you as you belong to him. So let's pray and then take communion when you're ready and we'll respond in a few songs. Father, I thank you that we belong to you and we don't have to be our own creators. We don't have to uh, just belong to ourselves. We don't have to be the center of our own decision-making, but we have you, a good king, a good father, a good savior, and we can trust you. Thank you for making us yours. I pray that you would continue to shape us as a church to be full of grace and truth as you are to us. In your name, Jesus, amen.